Revelation 21, we've been doing like one verse at a time here the last several weeks, but I, we're going to try to do about four verses, 9, 10, 11, 12, four verses today, hopefully, Lord willing. And uh, this is the bride, the lamb's wife, part two. We're going to pick it up in verse nine. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, and again, that's already happened. So now we're moving uh, beyond that to uh, the realm, the time of eternity. But, um, so, but this is just a reference for John to tell us who this particular angel was that was conversing with him. He came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look into these four verses today that you would give us insight and understanding. And Lord, continue that process of preparing us for eternity where we will very thankfully, very gratefully, very humbly live with you in paradise for all eternity in the new Jerusalem. Lord, we ask your blessings upon this time of Bible study now in Jesus' name. Amen. So apparently this is the same angel that had shown John the great prostitute. Remember the woman who rides the beast, the harlot, the great harlot, Revelation 17:1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And so we see a contrast here in this chapter between the bride, the lamb's wife, identified here as the new Jerusalem, and Babylon, the great harlot of Revelation 17, 1 and verse 5. We have the contrast between a temporary, temporal, fleshly beauty of a man-made attempt at utopia, at paradise. That'll be, you know, the, the whole world is going to be caught up in this deception under the leadership of the one world government, the one world economy, and the one world religion, which we're right at the precipice even now as we speak. We know that, right? And at the beginning, it will seem like the, the human race has finally achieved Utopia, paradise, everything that they have ever longed for, and of course it's all going to go south real quick. But we have the contrast here between this temporal fleshly beauty of the great harlot, and we all know that, uh, that, that idea of harlotry, it's overstated, it's overdone, you know, in the makeup and the clothing and so forth to entice Whereas God's beauty is just glorious, it's wonderful, it's everything we could ever hope for. And so we have the contrast between the two. That temporal fleshly beauty and corruption of the great harlot, the uh, one world system of the last days, versus the eternal, heavenly, perfect, incorruptible beauty of God's eternal kingdom, the new Jerusalem, the bride, the lamb's wife. And as we saw in verse 2, the angel is referring here. Now, yes, we, the church, are the bride of Christ, 
but I'm going to explain why New Jerusalem is also called the bride, the Lamb's wife. Revelation 21, verse 2, which we have already covered previously. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So he's equating the beauty of the New Jerusalem to the beauty of a bride adorned, decked out, dressed up for the wedding. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now, what does that mean, he carried me away in the spirit? It, it, um, in other words, he wasn't literally taken to a high mountain. Like the rest of Revelation, John has shown things in the spiritual realm. Way back at the beginning of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 10, John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. We see similar phraseology in chapter 4, verse 2, Revelation 17, 3, where John talks about being in the Spirit. And so he's having these revelations, these visions, this revealing in the Spirit. And it literally means in a state of spiritual ecstasy. Paul, the apostle, had a similar experience that he writes about in 2 Corinthians 12, 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, it must have been a pretty graphic experience for him to remember the details after 14 years. But he says, I know a man in Christ, and he's speaking of himself here, by the way, who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know. So John's saying, I don't know if this was, I was there physically or not, or whether out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And if you've ever wondered about that, what does that mean, the third heaven? Well, we have, you know, our atmosphere around the earth, uh, the things that we can see, and now we can see pretty far out there, can't we? In fact, not surprisingly, it's kind of funny. One of the, the new catchphrases is follow the science. Do you, know, you know that one? The only question is who's science, right? Ed was talking about all the modern technology has enabled young people of the birthing age to now see these graphic, vivid pictures of their unborn babies, and it's transforming people's hearts and minds, and they're realizing, yes, this really is a human being. So in that case, I would say, yes, follow the science. Amen. See, the, the fake science says, oh, the abortion is good for women. It's, it's for their health, good. right? That's not real science. But now what we're also finding, the more and more that they're able to see out farther and farther, I can't even remember the number. It was astronomical. I just read about these millions of galaxies they're now finding. You know? And our, our understanding of the vastness of the universe, and they're now talking about universes within universes. And you know what that tells you? Yes, our God is an infinite God. You know? No matter how powerful the telescopes get, you will never be able to see the end of God's infinite universe. And so, yeah, I, I agree. Follow the real science. Sometimes when they say follow the science, what they really mean is follow my version 
of the science, right? But at this point, the angel takes John in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed him the great or the holy city. You know, our view of things from earth is very limited, although, as I just mentioned, it's, it's increasing all the time. We, I was explaining to you the third heaven. So we have the first heaven, which we can see. The second heaven would be where uh, angelic beings hang out, both good and bad. The Bible tells us Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So there are, are other dimensions, and even, again, those in the scientific community have confirmed this, that there are other dimensions that we're not able to see with our physical eyes. There are things going on all around us right now that we can't see. God's holy angels, demonic entities, all of the above. So the second heaven would be where that kind of activity is going on. The third heaven is where God's throne room is. Okay? John says he was caught up to the third heaven, the highest level. But we go on here, and our view of things from earth is very limited, isn't it? Even though, I, like I said, we can see a lot more than we used to be able to see, we still cannot see the entirety of God's amazing, incredible, infinite creation. And so the angel here is showing John the new Jerusalem from God's vantage point, gets him up onto a high mountain. Ezekiel 40, verse 2, this is, Ezekiel had similar visions. In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, just like with John here. On it toward the south was something like the structure of a city. And then in Mark 4, 8, the devil took Jesus up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And what Satan was trying to do there, of course, was entice Jesus to bypass the cross, which would have left you and I high and dry. Satan said, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you the whole package right now. But he was pretty stupid. <laughs> it already all belongs to Jesus anyway. He was just trying to uh, deceive him. You can't deceive Jesus. But anyway, we see multiple places in the Bible where in order to get a, a, a greater, broader perspective, Ezekiel was taken up onto a high mountain. Jesus was even taken up onto a high mountain. And here in Revelation, it's John, and he's looking out over uh, the New Jerusalem. So why is the New Jerusalem referred to here as the bride, the wife of the Lamb? Well, let me give you some examples. Just like a house becomes a home when a family moves into it, right? That's what makes a house a home. It's when there's a, a family living in it. There are people occupying it. Back in the day in California, it was Hearst Castle, if you've ever heard of that. The great publishing magnet. Wrigley Mansion in Arizona, where I grew up, they had a big mansion out there near Paradise Valley in Phoenix. Uh, Wrigley Mansion, Trump Tower in uh, New York. Biden's basement. Well, you know, everybody's got their thing, right? But a city, what makes a city a city? It's the people. It's not just the buildings. If you have a, a big, broad geographical area filled with massive buildings, but there are no people, you know, 
back in the day, they used the term ghost town, right? A ghost town is a town where there are no people. It's the people who live in a city that give it an identity and a purpose. You know, when I was a kid, I don't think, I don't think they use this anymore, but growing up in Scottsdale, Arizona, it was kind of podunk back in those days, and, and, the, and the official title for Scottsdale was the West's most western town. Believe that or not. But we used to have hitching posts in downtown Scottsdale where people could tie up their horses, if you can believe that. So that was a long time ago. I'm not as old as you might think, but it was a long time ago. The West's most western town. And then Philadelphia, historically, it was given that name because Philadelphia, coming from the Greek, means brotherly love. And it was called the city of brotherly love. Now it's the city of mass violence. Um, but you get my drift, right? Cities are identified by the people who live there, the characteristics, the nature, and that's what makes a city a city. That's what makes a house a home. And so the New Jerusalem is the bride, the wife, because we will be living there with our husband, Jesus. And so you could also call it Wife Town or Bridesville, the New Jerusalem, the bride the Lamb's wife. And by the way, folks, this is the very city spoken of in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. How many of you would do that? The thing to understand about Abraham is not only did he answer God's call, God called him out of someplace, Haran, not knowing where he was going. What if God told you, I want you to get in your car and start driving and I'll tell you where you're going when you're already on the road? It's kind of how it is with missionaries, isn't it? <laughs> how many would obey that? But that's what happened with Abraham when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive his inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. And oftentimes that's better than knowing where you're going, because if you knew where you were going, you might say no. Remember Jonah? I'm not going to Nineveh. But he wound up there anyway. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, but as in a foreign country. So as far as an earthly dwelling, the land of Canaan, which became Israel, he was dwelling in the land of Canaan, as in a foreign country. In other words, he never considered himself a citizen of Canaan. He considered himself a foreigner dwelling there, dwelling in tents, not permanent buildings. With Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him, with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. What this passage in Hebrews is speaking of is the new Jerusalem. Even Abraham, way back thousands of years ago, knew that his eternal destination was not Canaan. It was not any place here on this existing earth. It was the city of God, the new Jerusalem. We move back down to verse 13 through 16. And we call this the, uh, the faith hall of fame, Hebrews chapter 11. And it recounts the great faith of all the men and women in the Old Testament. 
And it says in verse 13, these all died in faith. That's very important, by the way. They never lost their faith. They never gave up. They never turned back. They never turned on God. They all died in faith, not having received the promises. Now, they did get blessings. They did get a temporary dwelling place. But they had not have, having received the promises. In other words, the promises of eternal life in paradise with God in the New Jerusalem. They died before they got to see that. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them. And folks, this is what it's all about for us as believers. Having an unwavering, unshakable faith and belief in the promises of God, whether you can see them with your physical eyes or not. Having seen them afar off, we're assured of them. The Bible says we have a sure and certain hope. If you have any doubt, any wavering, now I'm not saying that from time to time any believer might experience that, but in Christ it should very quickly be overcome by that sure and certain hope. The enemy may try to come and sow us a little seeds of doubt and unbelief, but they will almost immediately be eradicated by the Spirit of God living in you. Okay? So don't feel guilty if you've ever had a little tinge or twinge of doubt. Because you don't think the devil's just going to sit back and let you cruise the rest of your life in that faith, do you, without trying to, to throw you off? Of course he is. And a lot of times people get thrown off by the trials and tribulations of this life. Because again, they probably don't have that broad overall perspective. You lose a loved one. People, you know, there's that old saying, trials will make you bitter or better, right? You have a choice. You get mad at God, you blame God, or you yield yourself over to the will of God, just like Jesus did in the garden. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, speaking of his crucifixion. <clears throat> Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. I've shared this with you before, but I'll just throw it out there again. Yes, it's hard, it's painful to lose a loved one, to lose a family member, to lose a friend. But <clears throat> whoever told you that they weren't going to die? Everybody dies. The Bible says it's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And since we already know that in these mortal, perishable bodies, sooner or later, we're all going to die, then why do we get mad at God when somebody dies? Is that logical? Is that reasonable? No. And only God gets to decide unless you decide to take your own life or you do something foolish that results in a loss of life, and then certainly how in the world can you blame God for that? If you're going 100 miles an hour down I-40 and you flip your car and die, is that God's fault? Why didn't God stop me? <laughs> but God has created us as free moral agents because we are created in His image. We have the ability to make choices. We can make good choices, we can make bad choices. And when we make bad choices and something bad happens, we can't blame God for it. So you're gonna, we're all going to face these choices as long as we're here on this planet. You know that, right? 
We talked a few weeks ago about being an overcomer, enduring till the end. And so we all need to just decide right here and now, just like Job, I doubt that many of us in this room have experienced as much suffering as Job did. And yet what was his great statement of faith? Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. And so Job was saying, I don't care what happens to me. I'm still going to worship God. I'm still going to praise God. He's God and I'm not. I have no right to question him, to challenge him. His ways are not our ways. His ways are beyond our knowing and our understanding. All right. Verse 13. Embrace, they embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Speaking of the promises. Let's read the whole verse again. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And see, one of the things that can really cloud our judgment, fog our vision, our spiritual vision, is when we get too friendly with this world. They, were, they confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, so they realized, this is not really my eternal home, this is a temporary stopover here. And they had set their eyes on that city whose builder and maker is God. But if we get too friendly, too comfortable, too in love with this world, and Jesus warned about that, then it will be difficult for us to focus on those eternal things that really matter. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the, that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. The better country, the heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And this is all speaking of the very city that we're learning about here in Revelation chapter 21. The bride, the lamb's wife, the new Jerusalem. So all of those who have gone on before us in the faith, they did not set their sights on building earthly empires. In fact, all those early patriarchs were tent dwellers. They lived in tents. And Paul refers to our earthly bodies as tents. Instead, they set their eyes, their hearts, and their minds on the heavenly city that God has been preparing for his family. May we all be of that same heart and mind. Amen? Okay, John 14, 4, Jesus tells the uh, disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, we sang that song today, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And again, some translations here say many rooms. I know my wife was really bummed out the first time she read that. I don't want a room. I want a mansion. Well, here's the deal. In God's house, every room is the size of a mansion, okay? So we're all good, right? We're all good. So, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus told us that, right? Has Jesus ever lied? Not once. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, oftentimes when we read this verse, we think of that as our little niche up in heaven. But the reality is he's referring to our eternal dwelling place, the new Jerusalem, the bride, the Lamb's wife. The following verses, we're only going to cover two of them this morning, but this next section of Revelation 21 gives us John's earthly description, if you will, using the best information available to him at the time that he received the vision of a city beyond his or our comprehension. Keep that in mind. No matter how glorious and beautiful this may sound, it's limited by John's perception and understanding, okay? So verse 11, having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So, having the glory of God, or one translation reads, it shone with the glory of God. So in keeping with what we've already learned in previous studies, go back to Revelation 21, or go forward rather, Revelation 21, 23. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And so... We deal on this life with, you know, all kinds of energy issues, energy crises and so forth, blackouts, rising energy costs. Anybody's electric bill gone up lately? (laughs) Well, in the New Jerusalem, all of the light that we will ever need will be provided by God himself and by the Lamb. The glory of God, he will illuminate it. The Lamb is its light. The Bible said God dwells in unapproachable light. I think he's probably got enough light to light up the New Jerusalem, don't you? And then Revelation 22, 5, there shall be no night there. I've talked about this before. I I love the idea of no night. You know, the Bible says that uh, evil deeds are done under the cover of darkness. We call Satan the prince of darkness and so forth. No darkness is great for me. And uh, I guess we won't even need to sleep, which is also pretty cool. Uh, maybe if you want to take a nap just for the fun of it, you can. I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And here's another song we sang this morning. They shall reign forever and ever. You reign forever, Jesus, and we will reign forever with you. So her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. First in the Old Testament, jasper is listed as one of the stones in the breastplate of the high priest. Exodus 28, 20, Exodus 39, 13, Ezekiel 28, 13, and Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. This is the precious gem used to describe the appearance of God himself. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, Clear as crystal. Revelation 4.3. He who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Okay, finally, verse 12. Also, she, the city, the bride, the lamb's wife, had a great and high wall with 12 gates. There's a great gospel song, 12 gates to the city. I don't know if you've heard that one. And twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the, in the, are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. 
We're going to learn more about that great high wall possibly next week or the week after. In verses 17 through 20. So 12 gates. Now the number 12 is significant in this passage. We see 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 tribes. We'll see 12 foundations, 12 apostles, 12,000 stadia is one of the measurements, 144 cubits, which is 12 times 12, 12 pearls for the gates, and we will also be seeing 12 crops of fruit. As we look at biblical numerology, the number one equals unity, one God, one Lord, one church, one body. Two equals union. The Bible teaches that in marriage, the two shall become one. The number three stands for the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Number four stands for the earth. Why? Because we have north, south, east, and west. Five is a divisional number. We have the story of the five wise and the five foolish virgins, the two groups. We had five loaves, remember? 5,000 men were fed by those five loaves and a few fishes. Five talents. Remember we have the, Jesus gave one ten talents, one five talents. And then he rewarded them accordingly to the one who took the five talents and multiplied them. He gave five cities to rule over. The number six is the number of man, mankind. Six days shall you labor, Exodus 20 verse 9. On the seventh day you rest. And of course you take the three sixes. The trinity of man so to speak. The trinity of evil. 666 the Antichrist. Revelation 13, 18. The number seven you probably know is the number of perfection. Or completion. Twelve. Twelve has to do with government. Administration. He told the twelve apostles. They would be sitting on twelve thrones. Uh, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then uh, earlier in Revelation, as we, as we saw John caught up, chapter 4, into heaven, we come across the 24 elders, which 12 plus 12, 12 Old Testament patriarchs, 12 New Testament apostles, you get 24. Then we have the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, 12 times 12. So just as a point of interest, this number 12, God is a, a God of order. You know, you look at the incredible vastness of his creation. And again, when you follow the science, so to speak, I know Dave Hunt. How many of you remember a great man of God named Dave Hunt? Wrote a lot of good books. If you haven't ever read any of his books, I recommend you seek him out. He's with the Lord now. But I was at a prophecy conference back in Appleton, Wisconsin, a number of years ago at the Calvary Chapel there. And Dave was talking about DNA and basically making the case that what they've now learned about the DNA sequencing and all the intricate mathematical equations that go along with it is pretty much proof positive of intelligent design. Okay? And even our, our brains operate like highly powered computers. And so just looking at the, the numerology of the Bible, again, just uh, shows us the incredible intricacy and preciseness of God's creation. 
So our eternal dwelling place, the New Jerusalem, will be a place of incredible order and symmetry, no chaos. God is not the author of confusion, the Bible says. Unlike this world, where it's like uh, chaos makes the world go round, right? (laughs) This world has been filled up with the chaos and confusion of man's imperfect creations. And again, we have made some incredible strides, but as we talked about so many times, with man's creations, there's always a downside. There's always some kind of a backlash, some kind of a reaction, you know what I mean? But with God's creation, it's not like that. The Bible says he makes all things beautiful in his time. And the, the bride, the lamb's wife, the new Jerusalem is going to be a place of incredible order, symmetry, beauty beyond our ability to even comprehend. We also see here not only the 12 gates, we see 12 angels, 12 tribes. Each gate will have a heavenly Walmart greeter. (laughs) Welcome. Welcome to the bride, the lamb's wife. Welcome to Bridesville. (laughs) How cool, right? And names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel, the 12 Gates will have 12 names written on them, which are the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Confirming, folks, by the way, and and we've talked about this so many times as well, replacement theology, right? Two-thirds of the churches in America now embrace replacement theology. You know what that is? They teach that we, the Gentile church, have replaced Israel, that God has abandoned Israel forever. All you have to do is read the book of Romans to find out that's not true. This confirms it. Lest there be any doubt, each gate will have a name of one of the tribes. You know? As you go through that gate, you're going to see the name of that tribe, and you're going to be reminded that the faithful remnant of God's chosen people will dwell with him and with us for eternity in his holy city. And we are living in a time, we've talked about it so much, how there's more and more persecution being leveled against Christians, against the body of Christ, but it's also being leveled against the Jews. And we are sadly, unfortunately, at some point, during the tribulation, we won't be here, I don't believe, but there will be one final intense Holocaust-like persecution of the Jews. That's why we're always encouraged to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, pray for God's people, because they are facing incredible persecution in the days ahead, as are the believers. But the good news is, we should be like the folks in Hebrews chapter 11, that we're fixing our eyes on that holy city which God is preparing for us. That is our eternal dwelling place. This is just a temporary stopover. Let's stand. Before we have our closing song, I'd like to just uh, give an opportunity for those this morning who would need prayer for for any reason. So please uh, raise your hand if you have a prayer request this morning.
God sees your heart. God sees your hand. He knows. Let's pray. Father, you see everyone here this morning who has raised their hand. Lord, and there may be some who did not raise their hand, but deep down inside they do have a prayer request that they've not really indicated. So you know everyone here. You see the hands. You see the non-hands. Lord, we lift each one up to you. Father God, we thank you that we don't have to go through the trials and tribulations of this life all on our own. That as we draw near to you, your word tells us you will draw near to us. And Lord, that we have that wonderful, amazing opportunity to have an intimate, personal relationship with you, Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ, if we will simply confess the truth that we are sinners and we will repent of those sins, turn from following a lifestyle of sin and become followers of Jesus Christ. So I pray, Father, first of all, for anyone here today who maybe hasn't made that choice yet. They haven't made that decision. They haven't really yielded their life over to you. I pray that you would help them to do that even now, that they would confess to you that they're a sinner, receive that forgiveness of sin that you so graciously offer to us, and that you would make them a child of God, Lord, a member of your forever family, transform them by the renewing of their minds, fill them with your Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. And Father, we lift up health issues this morning that are represented here by some of these hands that have gone up. We pray for healing whenever and however possible. Lord, we know ultimately you are in charge, you are in control. We don't always understand how and why things play out the way they do, but we do humbly call upon you for healing, for physical issues. We pray for Terry Mayfield here today. Lord, I don't know exactly what her condition is at this point. It was uh, stated that she probably would not pull through, but we pray, if, if possible, for a miracle. If not, that you would lovingly, graciously usher her into your presence, give comfort, strength, and peace to the family. Pray for others here today who have lost loved ones, that you would comfort and strengthen and encourage. Lord, for those who are struggling with various illnesses, no matter how significant or insignificant, Lord, you care. You've told us in your word, even when one sparrow drops to the ground, that you're aware of it and it touches your heart. So we pray for healing for colds and flu and sinuses and leukemia and cancer and heart disease. Lord, all these things, nothing is too difficult for you. We pray for healing, Father, relief from arthritic pain, lung conditions. Lord, it's all the same to you. We ask that you would just pour out your healing upon your people. We pray for healing of broken and damaged relationships, marriages that are struggling or in trouble. Lord, that you would bring healing. We know that the enemy would like to destroy and tear down marriages, Christian families. We ask for healing and restoration in Jesus' name, for, for wisdom, for guidance, for strength, for faith to deal with these things. Lord, for anxiety and depression, whatever it might be, bitterness, loneliness. Lord, there are so many things that can plague us, and yet your plan for us is that we would be free from these things, that we would have peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I pray for you to pour out your peace and your joy upon your people, Lord, in Jesus' name. And finally, Lord, I pray for financial issues, provision, whether it be for missionaries like Loke and Leah, Lord, for just us regular folks back here at home, 
Lord, you've promised to provide for our needs. We, we ask you to help us to be good stewards, to exercise wisdom in how we use our resources. But Lord, where they come up short, we ask you to help us to provide, provide jobs for those in need of employment, provide resources, however you choose to do it, Lord. And may we never forget that you are our provider. We thank you and we praise you and we thank you for this time of worship and study in your word today. Help us to take these truths with us. May they work their way deep into our hearts and minds and guide and direct the way we live, the way we think, what we believe. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.